Oh, thank you. Yeah. And in fact, here we are. We've just started recording. Oh, have we? Oh, Cultural nice. Studies podcast. It's totally <laughs> and I am in a slightly grey, very grey, autumnal London afternoon well, Saturday I'm cafe to to go uh, in East Central London. I'm with Bridget Connor. We've just been exchanging our experiences of weeping watching films on airplanes. Yeah, we have. It happens a lot to me. I won't deny it. And the content doesn't matter. No, I think Hello. That's, that's, I know that's I'd love a cup of tea. Do you like some tea? I'd also love tea. Yeah. yeah. I'm okay at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Don't worry, it's not an internet date. You can enjoy it. Why can't you do a menu? I record all the German I need on the internet for my own uses. <laughs> Actually, that's, that might be true, but it's not. So, is there any generic element to what makes you cry on airplanes, Bridget? Or is it, could it be, be a cunt, a Bugs Bunny cartoon? No, I mean, I don't know about you, Toby, but I use long-haul flights to catch up on my romantic comedies. Um, the films I would not normally um, pay for at the movies, the ones I'd be too ashamed to pay £15 to go and see, but the ones that secretly I really do want to see, like the Nicholas Sparks adaptations featuring Zac Efron and... And the latest young blonde, you know, coaster. So you, those are the ones that will also make me cry, shed shed buckets. So when and then feel feel worried about myself afterwards after I get off the plane and return to normal life. When you read the Jonathan Cape placed stories in today's papers, that there's a third instalment of the Bridget Jones. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Ergo, you know, the great new stimulus to chip it. Yes. Ergo to the rom-com. Did, you, did this fill your heart with anything or your tear banks with anything? Or no? Um, oh, a, a flicker of mild curiosity. Right. But, I mean, I enjoyed Bridget Jones very much. It seemed, it sounded to me because I heard Helen Fielding on the radio yesterday. Well, she was on Woman's Hour. So she was on Woman's oh, Hour. Yeah, That's right. That. No, I heard that, which was interesting. But it, uh, I, I worried that perhaps it was just another way to produce another Zellweger film. I'm not sure. If, I wondered why now. I didn't. Novels animated by film. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's it. It struck me in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a while since the last film. It was. It is a while. Quite a while now. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. However, that does lead vaguely into one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is in fact screenwriting. Yes. Uh, because it has an interesting relation to novel writing, obviously. It does. And, so on. and it's one of your areas of speciality. Yes, can you yes. Tell us a bit about your work on that. Yeah, I can. Um, I, you make a very interesting point, and it's exactly why I started thinking about screenwriting, because I remember when I started doing this work on screenwriting in 2007, uh, the, the writer's strikes were um, beginning and un underway in, the, in, in, Hollywood. in Hollywood, Yeah, which was having somewhat of a knock-on effect here in the UK, or at least British writers 
there was discussion around whether British writers who were or were not in the guilds would be involved in these or whether they would be exactly or whether they would get more work as a consequence but that was also all going on but what I was really um, what I started to think about then was in what ways was screenwriting similar and or different to other kinds of writing that was what I was exactly your question there I, I was really interested in because it seemed to me from um, it seemed to me that as I started reading and thinking about screenwriting most of the writers who were interviewed or talking seemed to do lots of different kinds of writing at once mm. so I wondered in that nice array thank you very much thank you thanks in this kind of a um, portfolio career, you could say, in which one is doing a number of different kinds of writing all at once, what, thank you, what in that particular uh, career or equation, how, how did screenwriter, screenwriting offer something different to those other kinds of writing? Was it complementary, I wondered, in a career? Um, or was it at odds with other kinds of writing where you might have more authorial control? Mm -hmm. Is your less part of an overtly industrial mechanism? Yes. If you're writing other things like novels, there's an industrial mechanism that it's really about the physical presentation of your ideas and not their transformation through sounds and yes. many other interlocutors. That's it, absolutely, yeah. And I suppose because I was interested in thinking about um, screenwriting as a kind of creative work, kind of creative labour, I, I wondered within screenwriting itself how did what was the relationship between creativity and craft because it seems as I started to read and think about screenwriting more than, than creativity being foregrounded as something primary like other kinds of writing perhaps you know exercising the creative muscle it was about the craft seemed to come out very quickly it was the craft of screenwriting which was often the appeal to that particular kind of writing as opposed to other kinds that you might be doing at different points in time the craft was was primary in some interesting way I found that really fascinating because in other respects you know creativity and craft are often seen to be these two um, opposites or these different kinds of impulses I don't think that's necessarily true but I found it really interesting in screenwriting the way these two were the relationship between them how would you distinguish them creativity and craft um, Oh, good question. I mean, if I think about it in terms of screenwriting and, and what I discovered in talking to writers, um, craft was regularly located in the, the rules of the work, right? The, yeah, the formula, the kind of the rules of the structure, you know, it was almost like, and learning those elements of the craft, right, which go back to the earliest days of the profession, um, there was kind of a mastery to those elements of, of the, the rules and the formulae, which seemed to me to be the basis of craft in this respect. Now, of course, then, it, 
often creativity was then connected here um, in terms of what how you could play with once you knew the rules how you could play with them um, append them do something different with them but it was the rules and the formulae that came first um, now of course like this is a certain kind of screenwriting I mean you know if you're there are other kinds of writing perhaps when you just start working with actors and you start you know um, in some more kind, more organic process you start you know improvising and you start writing scenes like a Mike Lee type of thing but I was interested much more in um, you know mainstream industrial forms of screenwriting and were you doing an historical study or was this strictly contemporary um, there was elements of history because that's really fascinating to me um, you know I was I was interested in, at least to some extent, thinking about and looking at when those foundational elements of the craft that now seem to be so taken for granted, when those were kind of, you know, supposedly set in stone in relation to the industry, you know, those early pioneers of the continuity script, that kind of thing. Um, and I was also really interested right from the beginning in those how to be a screenwriter manuals, mm. you know, that tell you how to be a screenwriter in a month, 12 days, two days, you know, whatever it is, 24 you, hours. You could buy in the old days packets that would arrive over a certain time giving you newer and newer information about it. Of course. Unfailing. Course would appear. Absolutely. Now, yes. one of the things that's interesting historically in Hollywood is that, as you know, this was a completely gendered occupation, yeah. mainly female, yes. for a very long time. Yeah. Why was that and why did it change? Do you know that? Well, I mean, I kind of. Yeah, the. the the, the interesting gender dynamics of this profession are utterly fascinating to me. Um, and I know something about this, although there's lots more, I think, that I want to know about. I mean, what I was interested in in those really early days, as you say, absolutely, there were so many women writing films. And not only were they writing, you know, they seemed to have these kind of... Again, these multivalent careers that now are talked about as something very new. This doesn't seem so new to me in relation to screenwriting, you know? So these early women pioneers were, were writing the scripts, you know, and they were also involved perhaps in lots of other ways, you know, art direction or costumes or set design or, you know, kind of producing. All that stuff seemed to be part and parcel of of what the career would, would be. It's, and so the, the, at least the way I found that, that certain kinds of histories talked about this early time is one of kind of freedom and creative freedom in so many different ways and gender seemed to play into that, um, that discourse. Um, freedom, experimentation, you know, all those kinds of things. But at a certain point in time, um, and at least the way the histories describe it, this seems to be around the time of the the 
the formulation, the kind of concretization of the continuity script, and the rise of certain kinds of, um, you know, certain early auteur figures, you know, the pioneer men that pioneer the continuity script. Um, you know, these, these authoritarian figures that start to come into the histories, then this is when you, you know, you start to see less talk about, you know, early women pioneers. And you know, you get this new kind of discussion and discourse around the rise of the auteur and the rise, I think, of this, um, this mythic, this mythic figure of the writer that I think still has so much potency and power. It relates to other kinds of creatives, but the, um, you know, the lonely maverick, the put upon, you know, kind of writer, the a kind of version of the writer in the garret, but the kind of, you know, the put upon guy who struggles, um, you know, and his ideas are always taken away from him, his script is always, you know, his baby is always torn limb from limb. Struggling with the system. Absolutely, and yeah. Also, I guess, this is happening around the time that Hollywood is importing people from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's bringing Broadway dramatists mm. and East Coast novelists yeah. to town. So you're getting F. Scott Fitzgerald yeah. and William Faulkner. you're getting Faulkner as hacks that are there to entertain the party circuit, yeah. have their novels adapted but also write screenplays themselves. So yeah. there's an increasing use of somewhat high cultural figures from elsewhere, from other modes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And there's this beautiful, I mean, that time is so rich. Um, not only then for all these really fascinating, then you get novelizations of that time, right? You know, so you get The Last Tycoon, those other kind of texts, which, yeah, again, it's... People are writing novels about Hollywood. Absolutely. Like Nathaniel West. Yeah, absolutely. Day of the Locust, all like of those. Fitzgerald himself. Yeah. That seemed to me to be a really important part of the, the mythologization of the screenwriter and the, 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 this kind of... Um, yeah, that myth of them arriving, you know, coming from other, some kind, supposedly higher form of writing. Yeah, they've come from literature, they've come from theatre, Broadway, you know, where their ideas are respected and they're considered, you know, important elements of a creative process. They're kind of foundational creative voices and then they arrive in Hollywood and it's this kind of venal um, time. You know, there are so many wonderful quotes from that time, um, Faulkner and others talking about screenwriting and how their feelings about it as a profession in relation to what they were used to in New York or elsewhere. You know, there's, there's all these kind of really rich descriptions. It's like, I can't remember, is it Faulkner maybe? Or maybe it's Nathaniel West who describes the kind of, the endless, I think he terms it bone scraping revisions, you know, that are required when it's kind of, you know, um, ruled by decree. You know, this kind of no way that you can um, that anything is sacred and that any of your creative ideas have any weight, you know, in relation to this kind of, you know, and this is also the time when they're, at least as the, as the studio system develops and different studios get different reputations in relation to writers and how they work with them, you get these new interesting techniques kind of pioneered at the same time, you know, the kind of writing by committee 
type of um, development. You know, when you have, you know, a studio will start to, you know, they want to develop a script, but they'll have five different writers who they will hire to work on it simultaneously, but without knowing that the other one is working on it. So it's, you know, you get these interesting new developments in relation to, and I think, you know, some of those developments, and other writers have talked about this, you still see to today in interesting, in interesting ways. Um, but by this time, of course, I think um, there are very few women um, who uh, are writing. I mean, there, there are some, but I, I think, yeah, but much fewer. And you know, still to this day, if you look at the statistics, there's that book Lizzie Frankie's. Yeah, there is. It's a great book. One of the few. By the 80s and 90s, things have gotten so bad, but also feminism has gotten so weighty. If I can use a Bridget Jones. <laughs> Nine stone, three pounds, but after Christmas. <laughs> that the writers' guilds, East and West, are paying sociologists to nut out why so few women. Yeah. I mean, there are some quite interesting empirical studies that come forward trying to address this. But today, all the time, we get stories and law cases in Hollywood. I don't know about here about not only the small number of opportunities for women, but the way in which women sometimes, as writers, feel obliged to be bad ends, as we would yeah. say in this country. And if they're not, then often feel quite excluded and sometimes harassed yeah. by sexual gaggery. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do, I do. But you're one of 16 women writing friends or something. Yeah. And everybody else is making jokes and go into the show that are sexual. Yeah. And a lot of the jokes are told, even if they're not necessarily those together. The script are quite misogynistic. Well, that kind of scenario, we're quite familiar with. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. This is reminding me of like of John Caldwell's study. Yes. You know, and his he's looking a lot at below-the-line workers, but there's really interesting stuff in there about kind of writers, the, the, the writer's room, you know, which very few sociologists or researchers have access to, but the kind of the gender dynamics of the writer's room in which... Um, yeah, it is some kind of a masochistic uh, work culture, and you're right. You know, the kind of jokes and the Ladette culture is all its all part of the spitballing process, and either, you know, you just get into the fray or, you know, kind of get out and that, that kind of stuff. Um, but this kind of relates, I mean, this is an interesting point in terms of um, generally what I found in talking to writers. I found it so interesting the ways in which these kind of... Um, these these myths about the pro the profession continue to percolate through the the ways in which contemporary writers talked about ideally what you need to be as a screenwriter you know the kind of person you need to be or the things you need to do and it, I, there was an interesting gender dynamic to this as well I mean again masochism was common right one had to be some kind of a masochist and that term was used over and over again and this is used in screenwriting manuals as well right you know you've got to be a masochist you've got to be an egotist right you've got to know that you're amazing and that you're fantastic even if no one else is going to think that you are and is going to destroy your ideas and rip your script apart um 
you have to kind of self-flagellate, you know, or you, you are, maybe you are a masochist anyway. There are a couple of coming out in our discussion. <laughs> <laughs> On this quiet Saturday afternoon, first drinking podcast, tea. You know, drinking, sipping tea, the very lady and gentleman-like. <laughs> oh gosh, yes, yes. Indeed. Well, you know, as you know, I spent many years living in LA and yeah. I spent a lot of time working in coffee shops like this where almost everybody else would be writing a script. Yes. And also spending time in a couple of different places where you, you rented space along with others and they yeah. were writing scripts. And they were as isolated as we are sometimes mm. as academics. The isolation bit inside this massive industry is part of it. I mean, I've also yeah. done, did a podcast someone who's a, a major league writer was a president of the library. I, I, I heard it, yeah. Ah, yeah, um, with my friend Jennifer Holt. And there he was in a demountable on the set, yeah. much more powerful position because of the way in which that kind of showrunning world operated. But in general, these people can be very, very necessary yeah. as they feel under control. So they have the graces of autonomy, but then also the problem of isolation that comes with that, but without actually the level of autonomy that you get if you're a writer outside this world. I think that's the other fascinating thing to me about, about it, because it seems to me that, yeah, you're absolutely right. On the one hand, screenwriters are, yeah, they're a version of that isolated, autonomous a creative. Um, yeah, the novel writer or the journalist or, or those other kinds of writers sitting alone at the laptop or the typewriter, you know, you still, yeah, those kinds of images. Um, and even, yeah, if you're in the coffee shop, you're still on your own, tortured by your characters who are struggling to come out of you. If you go along with the pseudo-psychological jargon of the manual you might have open beside the laptop. Um, but it's also at an interesting point there's a point in the in the process where you go from, and it, these aren't necessarily. Um, there's a, it's not kind of necessarily any kind of linear movement from one to the other, but at some point always, and it's a very painful process as a writer. You go from that. Now we're getting romantic. Yes. Well. Yes. True. We are. Yes. <laughs> they look like a classic rom-com couple. <laughs> Or have we, are we just writers? Have we just conjured them into being over there, maybe? Yeah. Uh, that on the one hand, and the fact that at some painful point in time, the screenwriter also then has to wholly give up that tortured, isolated persona because suddenly you have to give the, screenwriter, the screenplay over to others, right? And you have to then engage in a process of often prolonged collaboration with others. But it's... Um, it can be as, as just as isolating as when you were alone in the in the coffee shop, right? I mean, so I often found it really interesting because the, again, the writers I spoke to often the reason why they were a screenwriter and why they loved it so much was because of the collaboration, because of working with others, right? It's not like other. It's not like when you're a novel writer alone and you just have to work through the problems on your own and perhaps with your editor. 
at a certain point. Here it's wholly collaborative after a certain point, but... And of course if you're working on a series there might be 15 of you in a Absolutely, room. yes, yes. Now, the people you were speaking to, were they, they were British based? They were mainly British based, yeah. I mean the study was um, based in London, so most of them were based here. A few outside of London. But many were also, you know, as we know from the kind of uh, internationally mobile um, creatives that we've both thought about previously, you know, they were also, many of them, travelling back and forth to and from Los Angeles. Um, if they weren't a member of the Guild, that was a goal. And in fact, you know, not just Los Angeles, they were also oftentimes travelling to and from Europe because of often the way you could get a commission to have some steady income was European production companies. You know, you could get a commission from an Italian television firm and that would give you steady income. <laughs> oh, we do too. Purple shiny. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Definitely a wallflower. Shiny wallflower. Uh, yeah, so that was interesting because, um, yeah, the, the I was only able to talk talk to to so many writers in the time that I had, but you know it was interesting because quite a quite a number of them were working in London but travelling back and forth from Los Angeles and not just for writing by the way perhaps also for seminars, how to seminars that they were conducting Writers Guild and the Writers Guild Foundation are putting on such things all the time Absolutely, yes and perhaps also for how to be a screenwriter manuals yeah. because if this is a key finding right? if you no, could make a living well. of course sure, sure, no, I, I, this is like a perfect opportunity to I, I met the person who wrote screenwriting for dummies once Oh, yeah. Who was doing it in order to pay for the <laughs> cost of her MBA that she hoped would actually enable her to become solvent. Yeah. So, yeah. were these people mostly writing for television and it was practically Um, I mean. Or thinking of themselves as film writers? I think, yeah. I mean, the study was fairly small, so I can't generalise too much, but from the writers I spoke to, many had worked in television. I mean, and I think in the UK especially, most writers are shuttling back between television and film. It's very difficult to purely write for film alone, unless perhaps if you become some kind of a specialist, like if you become a, an adaptation specialist. You know, maybe then you can sustain a career. Even then, I think with the Downton Abbeys of the world, um, yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. I agree with you. I've given up on that show entirely. I'm upset. I've wasted so much of my life watching it. But it's a personal uh, insight there. But um, I think mate Julian Fellows has a lot to answer for. <laughs> Uh, shuttling back and forth. So many had written for television. Um, I wished that they could write exclusively for film, but but really, really yeah. Wasn't there, wasn't there a Showtime program about a British couple? Oh, there is episodes. Episodes who go yeah. to LA because they're series That's is a great bought, show. but it's bought and so the series that they shot here is bought and remade. Indeed. 
and Joey from Friends. Yes. And it's, yes. it's been quite successful. It has been successful. It's got signed for a second season. It is. It did, and I think a third now. Yeah, really interesting co-production. Um, and I wonder if it, I don't know if it's the writers of Friends or who are involved or other British or other American television writers. But um, yeah, that's really interesting. And again, some really interesting, I mean, because I'm also fascinated by the, um, the various representations of screenwriters on screen. I haven't done anything extensive on this, but I really, you know, not only have we got the kind of uh, the Coen brothers why am I forgetting the name of that classic film with the Coen Brothers? Fink. Sorry, Barton Fink, exactly. We have that kind so of... So unusual uh... that I should be able to correct Bridget's memory <laughs> or assist it. But I had to leap in there, listeners. Sorry, listener. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Barton Fink, the Charlie Kaufman adaptation kind of screenwriter. But that's really, that's a very interesting portrayal. They're a husband and wife writing team. They break up. They break up. They both have affairs. Yes, and she has an affair with, with Matt LeBlanc. It all goes horribly wrong. The and the it's just a wonderful portrayal of the writing Isn't by committee thing. Supposed to be massively endowed. In the he is. That's, that's a running. That's, that's a, a running, running gag. gag. Yes. 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 Indeed. And does does she either confirm or disconfirm this during her soliloquies? Um, Interesting question, Toby. I'm not sure if I can confirm or deny that. <laughs> I rem she's revolted straight after. She's straight after the the act, act the of which we speak. The third act. She's she's mortified and you know gagging about it. Because of holy matrimony. Because of holy matrimony. Yes. Um, so yeah, not sure if the, the, it's, it's the but Matt LeBlanc has a number of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's got a stalker who he can't help sleeping with, and there's various other characters, you know, along the way. But there's this also a really interesting portrait of like the writing by committee stuff. So yes, the kind of the absolutely. boss of the Hollywood stu the television studio. Who's never studio. even seen the TV series, but when they win an award, wants them. Right? Absolutely, yeah. it's really brilliant. Yeah. So and who's having an affair with the secretary, of course. You know, so it kind of it's it's kind of it's a really interesting farce almost. Yeah. Now you don't do a lot of textual analysis. It's not so much your thing. No. You're more likely to do textual analysis of a screenwriting manual than representations yes. of. Yeah. But this sounds like it would be a very rich yeah. thing to do to combine with your interviews and your political economy of these folks. Yeah. Um it it's it would be really interesting. I, I am, and it's. I've thought about it for a while, and just haven't quite found the time yet. Although uh, you're encouraging me to, to think more. I mean, I suppose the other thing that, that interested me, like to go back to the issue around the, our discussion earlier, gender and and screenwriting. Well, they don't mean the just girls. I don't mean just girls. Toby, I mean, gender more generally, yes, exactly, exactly, um, the Charlie Kaufman uh, figure of the, with the screenwriter with the sweat dripping off his forehead onto the keys of the typewriter and that kind of thing is also very fascinating, but I remember thinking um, earlier on, I mean, 
I'm not sure about in the US. You know, you mentioned earlier in the 80s and 90s all these studies around why aren't there more women writing. You know, I feel like at the moment there is a headline... I read a headline every few weeks. Why aren't there? Why are there so few women, right? Journalists or on television, reading the news, in comic books, writing, directing films, and so on, right? But I and I've always been interested in thinking, like, re, uh, methodologically, how can we? I'm interested in thinking about how can we bridge studies of work and labour with that kind of textual and representative analysis. Because there are all those questions also get asked about why aren't there more women or gay men or whoever it is on screen. So it's the same kind of formulation of a question in relation to the same sure, kind of industry. I think Herman Gray's done some very interesting work on this with relation to race on television. Right. And what to do about what happens with the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People or one of the various Latino coalitions brings out a report every fall historically in the United States to look at what the new drama offerings on the major networks have to say about race in mm. terms of diversity and how that becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy right. and doesn't interrogate its own terms yeah. sufficiently. It's that problem where an issue arises, there are words to describe it, they get turned into numbers, then it's hard to know how to turn them back into words and the words they get turned back into don't adequately describe because the numbers were tough to use to describe in this way, the real warping off of textuality, of course, real yeah. questions of diversity beyond adding up what numbers you say are, are on the senses, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. how difficult and limiting that can become and how... Sorry, what that's is this magic thing? It's a microphone. <laughs> Are you in the middle of an interview? Yeah. No, no, not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's no. A microphone and it was given to me by somebody. I do a series of podcasts to my interviewed. And I was just using this laptop or laptop like this to record. And afterwards, he said to me, you know, I missed the fact that there was no technology between us that they could feel as though I was really in an interview. So he gave me this. So it's really great. To make it people understand there's a microphone type thing. Right. I was also sort of really rude about it. No, not at all. <laughs> and so that they also, they don't stare too much at the computer because they tend to stare at the levels. Does it type? And worry about that. Oh, the levels. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, are you being interviewed? I am. Are you famous? Is that what it is? Yes. Maybe after today I will be. <laughs> you are. What's your name? <laughs> I'm not really. Bridget. Bridget. That's a famous issue. What's your name? Chippo. Chippo. That's a famous. That's a famous. C-H-I-P-O. C-H-I-P-O. That's great. Yeah. Lovely name. Well, Chippo and Bridget. Bridget and? I'm Toby. Toby, what's your podcast on? It's on iTunes and it's called Cultural Studies, one word. Well, that's interesting. What kind of cultural stuff? All kinds of things. So we're talking about screenwriting, and in particular we're talking about gendered issues within screenwriting, and we're just chatting about race issues in terms of access to power in Hollywood and TV and so on. I wanted to only write a script. I was just about to ask. I saw the look in your eye. I was like, oh, have you written a script? Well, I've got loads of ideas about just like maybe 10 episodes on a black family that's not in the middle of the ghetto. <laughs> I'm just sick and tired of 
seeing people who are just not like me. It's just yeah, it's a massively huge gap. So mm -hmm. more of a sort of Cosby Show middle class. Like, but maybe over here, John. Yeah, yeah but over here. It'll be exciting and different about mm -hmm. black people that go to university as well, maybe. <laughs> and our doctors and accountants. Because my dad's a doctor. Like, people yeah. of colour have got so many like things going on. And it's You've not got teeny episodes in your mind. Well, just because my family's in two seasons. I love it. Is that two seasons in England? Could be. Could be, yeah. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Bit of money, lots of exposure. Exactly. Well, indeed, in terms of access and actually getting in, it is. And also, we're talking about streamlining manuals, you know, the books that people read and write in order to work out what the current TV executives will and won't sign on to, that sort of stuff as well. Do you like that Ricardo thing? Because I must like pretend I look like I'm working. I probably do. Oh, I don't. Can I you hand over a piece of paper <laughs> of any kind, apart from a napkin? Maybe. I think Let's I might see. I actually have a few in here. Well, if you've got Then you. Oh, I do. Wonderful. And then, Toby, awesome. you can put can right, I get one your. Too? I want one as well. Oh, gosh. I'll give it back to you. Right. Well. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't engineered this podcast, listeners. Just letting you know, this is totally spontaneous. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, send me an email. Just yeah, send Bridget an email. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Nice Thank you. you. Enjoy the rest now of you're part of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard nice. here first, folks. Absolutely. Chippo's going to be bursting forth with our 10 episode <laughs> series, maybe. I'm going to produce it. Sounds great to me. Yeah. is going to make all the money. I'm take, sure will. Yeah. I know all about the deals money. now. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Just joking. No, I wouldn't do that. But it's an interesting question, the whole issue of how and why to measure these things. We all know it's important. Yeah. But what comes next? And yeah. also, what do you do about those complicated issues where, okay, there are now women studio heads in Hollywood. Yeah. There are now women heads of television networks in Britain. Yep. What difference does it make? Yeah. Absolutely. You can have them present. Does that really make the stories change? How many women get to direct and write action adventure, for example, in generic yeah. terms? Yeah. Doesn't make much difference depending on who the producer is. The producer of the James Bond movies, one of them is a woman. What difference does that make? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do find it interesting, these moments, um, if you've had this experience but I had one recently where I watched something new and it felt like there was it had a different sensibility to it and it was something I hadn't seen before and it was a British show um, recommended to me by a great friend of mine and it's a show called Getting On and it's on BBC4 so this was a B yeah BBC produced show but for no money at all 
written and starring three women, uh, and including Jo Brand. She's one of the writers and stars. And it's a very little drama about three women working in the NHS, two nurses National and Health a doctor. Service. National Health Service, sorry, yeah. Um, and it's very quiet and very small. Um, and yeah, kind of, I discovered it in season three, so I knew nothing about this show until I think I'm a bit of an aberration there because then I started reading all these rapturous reviews. But still, they kind of, from what I gather, put it away on BBC4 at 10pm on a weeknight or something like that or a weekend night um, and not many people had seen it but still it's in its third season um, and it's such a fascinating little portrait of women, it's largely women on screen, um, older women who are in the hospital and then these three. It's really funny and really sad and it was such, it just really resonated with me in a way that not many things do. It felt like something a bit different and interesting and I started reading about it and how these women just started writing for themselves because there wasn't much on television that they wanted to be a part of. They started reading and improvising and writing the script and acting in the scenes and rehearsing together in someone's living room in South London. It's just kind of really interesting how these things... Artisanal model. It felt like it and, did, and yeah. It can get picked up. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard Maggie Brown, I think it is. Yeah. Is that her name? Guardian columnist on TV. Okay, wrote a book yeah. on Channel 4. Right. Say, is that for all the claims that the decision to force the BBC to commission stories and programmes from outside and the spin-off from big organisations like it and ITV of new, new independent companies, that has led in many cases to fewer opportunities for those traditionally excluded from these big institutions because these profit-making bodies are not interested in training and they're not interested in diversity for no. its own sake. They're not under that kind of socio-political pressure. Yeah. And so less diversity can flow from them. Yeah. The story you've just given is a different one, but that's her concern about many of the leading production houses that allegedly are going to take away the behemoth aspect to what gets commissioned, but yeah. in fact become boys' clubs. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. White boys yeah, of course, absolutely. And I mean, I don't. It's I've found it very interesting at the same time as these kinds of questions that may have been asked recently in relation to British media, film, television and so, and so forth, um, I've been interested in, you know, in the last kind of year there's been this interesting uh, discussion around, oh, all these interesting new young women in the States, uh, new women-centered shows, um, girls, of course, Lena Dunham is kind of this phenomena, phenomena in her own right, but um, New after, girl. After Sex in the City. Of course, yeah. Post Sex in the City. An audience for uh, young women and their interests and concerns, but not only middle class, almost middle aged women as per that point. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, and 
other kinds of shows, often with young women at the Creative Centre. Mm. Um, Mindy Kaling's another one I've been watching, thinking about I don't recently. Know that. What's Mindy, no, Mindy Kaling is the woman. She's a writer. She she's been a writer on The Office, The American Office, for a number of years, and she was a kind of a a supporting actress and now she has a new show she's Indian American she's kind of so this is a really interesting she's kind of held up as this uh, binger of a new kind of generation of young women yes, I'm creatives. Sorry, I've seen an interview with her but I never watched The Office last time but I have read an interview with her. Yeah right and now it's a kind of new I think it's got been picked up for a full season so this is kind of this rash of new shows and it that seems to have been a new set of questions being asked about, oh, what does this mean for Hollywood? Are they taking, now of course they're taking young women seriously, perhaps. But I found it really interesting in all the discussions around Lena Dunham. I mean, again, diversity was talked about there. She was criticised and her show was criticised for still not being particularly diverse and representing a fairly small segment of... New York life. Waspish, yeah, white, privileged New York life. Um, and it's a fair criticism. It just, it seemed interesting to me that she was, I, I, you know, would, would a young man who had produced a show get so much credit? It seems like every kind of crit criticism that could be levelled at her what was levelled well, at her. Like the point that Spike Lee makes about Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese is not criticised for making or not making Italian-American themed movies. Yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Now, we've spoken about a continuum between novels, plays, film and television yeah. and gendered and raced aspects of that. What about the mythic solution to all these things, which is the medium through which people may listen to this podcast, namely the fucking internet? What about the fucking internet? <laughs> is this women's liberation? Can we turn that into a to an acronym? W what fi what fi yeah hashtag what fi <laughs> I'm on Twitter everyone Bridget is tell? on Twitter but she's forsaken Facebook due to a whole a vast array of compromising claims don't listen to a word Toby says not one word. Anyway, what fi? What fi? Okay. Let's talk. Let's talk what fi. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting because at the moment I'm now involved in. It's quite early days, but I'm involved in a new working group with a group of other academics, researchers, interested in looking at. Um, new kinds of evaluation for creative production online and in digital spaces. Now, so what I am starting to think about, right, although I have been for a while, is what kinds of interesting things are going are happening online in relation to screenwriting work. Now you mentioned before the kind of uh, the typical screenwriter in the cafe, alone, struggling, 
Oh, you know, with five, a coffee after coffee and everyone's, you know, the sweat and the mania, all those kinds of things. And I started noticing some interesting things happening online in terms of just my own going down little internet wormholes of my own and, and looking at how screenwriters, particular writers, were using the internet in different ways. And I found a few things that are, are really interesting in this respect. Now, bear with me because this is all very... This is all. I'm still thinking this all through, but I've noticed a few things. So, firstly, it's really fascinating how how-to discourse has just migrated so fully and interestingly online. Now, that manifests itself in lots of different ways. Firstly, all the gurus, McKee, Fields, and all of them now have apps, blogs, subscriber-based, you know, communities. Miller.com. Do you have an app? Can we can we download an app? Yeah, right. Yeah. So this maybe this is all part of our personal branding, uh, Wattfi type of <laughs> development. But maybe your next book should be called Wattfi type thing. <laughs> Wattfi type thing. Colon a study. Hashtag. <laughs> colon a study in articulacy. Okay. Yes. Wattfi yes. Wattfi type thing. Yes. Wattfi type thing. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so now even more, you just you've got the app on your phone, McKee Script Launcher. You have an idea for a script, like our friend the waitress. You open up your iPhone, you the script launches, and you have the template, right? The template, the formulaic template, ready, and you just start plugging in your variables to create the next blockbuster action film, whatever it is you might do. So there's that, but. But then there are also these other interesting developments. So um, there, I've been looking at a, a few different different communities online. Like for example, the Blacklist. So the Blacklist for a long time was a seemed to be like some kind of a mailing list and a hype machine. So every year the Blacklist would come out in Hollywood, and it was the list of the I think it was the 50 or 100 most buzzed about, talked about, unproduced screenplays currently circulating in the industry. Now it's gone online and it's called Blacklist 3.0. And it is an interesting, it has a variety of different spaces, it has a blog, it has a place where writers can discuss their, the problems that they're having, the things that they're doing, the films that they're watching to try and get inspiration. Um, and now, very recently, in the last few weeks, the Blacklist 3.0 launched a new feature whereby if you pay a certain amount of money, you can submit your script. And so our friend here could submit her pilot for her new television show. And for a fee, it will be sent on to industry professionals who will evaluate it, give notes, and send those back to the writer. Now this is being framed and this is really new, so well, it'll take time to see what's happening, but an interesting way, at least it's being framed as a way in which new voices can be heard. It's not like now you have to know the studio executive and get FaceTime with that executive and pitch your script and so forth. Potentially, if you have a, a true creative voice and you have something special, you can submit it via Blacklist 3.0, have it evaluated professionally and perhaps get it seen by the right by the right eyeballs. But not only this, but I found other interesting things, like Twitter is a really fascinating tool in this respect. So I found uh, an interesting process called tweet casting, 
where a group of writers, again, this was through Blacklist 3.0, I started watching this. I haven't looked closely yet. So this is where kind of every, a group of writers who are trying to crack the particular film or think about what it means will, will sit and watch a film simultaneously and tweet about it. Right, so it's like a simultaneous tweet cast and you kind of say, oh, when Harry met Sally, isn't it great? I'm not Zac Efron, what a, what a great guy. But you will talk about the script as you're watching the film and break it down and talk about the, the story beats, how it works and how it doesn't work. And there's this kind of process of evaluation going on embedded within. And the one other thing that I found, so this is all just kind of coming out because it's on my mind at the moment, is um, Jane Espenson, the writer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or one of the writers of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Battlestar Galactica. She's got a really interesting digital presence, and she's had a blog for a long time in which it's just a fascinating read. She's been very open and honest in talking about her career, how she writes, how she writes genre, how she writes jokes, you know, tricks of the trade and so forth. Um, and it's, I think, a really interesting kind of tool in its own right, the blog. She's now doing this interesting thing on Twitter where she will say, okay, followers, I need to get something done. So I'm gonna write for the next hour and if you have something, if you need to get a scene done, why don't you join me? And then she'll say at the top of the hour, we're gonna all write for an hour and then we will come back on Twitter and talk about what we did. So this is all just stuff I'm observing. I don't, I don't know if I can speak yet about about what it, what it means. But in, in different ways, it's these these interesting little communities developing. Um, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to get too kind of rose rose tinted glasses about about it yet. But at least it seems to ameliorate in some ways the, the kind of worst aspects of the loneliness or the pain. So a great way of getting the stimulation of an organic group to yeah. help you work yep. and of stealing ideas from other unknown people that you can use. Absolutely, yeah. And I think what's difficult, it's very opaque, it's difficult to see uh, because of course something like the blacklist is subscriber based, you pay a fee to submit your script, there's really no way of, you know, access is very difficult in terms of understanding what's really going on and how writers might feel about it. I mean, yeah, in the process of, you know, John Caldwell talks about this, idea theft is just rife within the industry already, you know, it's such a routine practice and always has been. Uh, yeah, it's really difficult to perhaps trace where it might go, um, but I, I, just, uh, lots of interesting stuff Definitely, and happening. how do you go about tracing what from? Well, I think this is what I'm thinking, uh, uh, wondering, pondering at the moment. I, I, I'm not sure, and I'm looking for answers, really. Um, well, in terms I, of the, go ahead. Sorry. I think the, the part part of the working group is partly, I think, a process of us trying to share ideas around exactly how to go about and trace those these kinds of how to gather data and, and analyze that data. There's quite we're asking. It's very early days, but we're asking quite practical questions about that kind of stuff at the moment. Um, and you know, uh, there's lots of more general methodological questions about undertaking an internet-based research and the ethics of that research, I think. Tracking, uh, pinning down identities and all that kind of stuff is is difficult, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet 
um, how it might all happen. I don't know, I just, yeah, I, I guess for this, this working group particularly, the focus is really on evaluation. Um, what does that mean in this case? Well, I think, yeah, I've had to kind of find a, 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 a different way into it because that wasn't my initial focus. I mean, certainly for, and you know, those, all those how to be a screenwriter manuals, there's lots of evaluative discourse, right? You know, a script can be right or wrong and there are successful films and not successful films and whether you follow the formula or not just, you know, determines uh, whether a film will work or not. Um, for other people in the working group, I think they're looking at other kinds of uh, processes of evaluation, like, for example, um, you know, audience-based evaluation, right? So audiences evaluating, peers evaluating, you know, a song or a script or a, you know, whatever it might be. That's not so much what I've been interested in. What's happening? More romance. <laughs> but the, the rom-com couple, overcome by oh, the level of writing, have we gone didn't off notice. And, they've gone off and found a room. <laughs> or gone behind one of these ornate the curtains here. Possibly. Or, or downstairs. Possibly downstairs, maybe that's the underground. I'm for them after the podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, also, you know, what's the time and the, and is night is falling already. It so, is. you know, that is... <laughs> uh, so this sounds like a very interesting working group. What I'd love to do, we've only got a few minutes left, okay. is, is to take you back, 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 back oh, wow. to, your, uh, to your earlier work, because people may want to mm. look at some of your published work. Can, yep. you, can you talk about some of the earlier things, things you've done that are about labour, for example, that relate to the screenwriting but what you published? You wrote something in... Flow. That's right. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, it was in Flow. I, was that 2009 or maybe 2010? I wrote a short piece and actually I thought about perhaps writing another follow-up piece only because that, that, that piece in 2010 was about the... Uh, the actors' labour dispute uh, in relation to the beginnings of the Hobbit productions. Um, my earlier research uh, when I was in New Zealand was... We just spent about four months of her life in Aotearoa, as you can mm. tell from her very convincing Pākehā accent. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? Pākehā. Pākehā. Accent, yes, yeah. Um... My earlier research was was about the production of the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, back in the early 2000s, but uh, of course they have subsequently they Peter Jackson et al have produced three new films, which will be the Hobbit trilogy. Um, but at the very beginning of those of the filming of the before the, the I think the films were still in pre-production it wasn't even clear that three were going to be made at that point um, and there was a dispute involving the actors unions and the actors involved in the, those productions which to me was this really interesting little insight into as you call it, the International Division of Cultural Labour. So it was 
a dispute involving the New Zealand actors, who were largely non-unionised, but some were affiliated with an Australian actors' union. And the Australian actors' union um, were concerned, I feel I have to be careful about the language, although it was a while ago, the Australian Actors Union were concerned about the variable conditions for actors and other people on the set of those films. Um, in New Zealand, labour and union laws are very different um, to what they are, for example, in the States around the Guild. So, of course, What's interesting in a production like these films is that you have people coming from all over the world, so you have unionised guild affiliated actors from the States and so forth, but you also have non-unionised actors in New Zealand and there was a big dispute around the politics of this. Now Peter Jackson got involved, he was very upset, there were threats that these films would move offshore, perhaps to Eastern Europe. Um, and, the, and then Peter Jackson framed it as, as, as the big Australian Union strong-arming the, the smaller New Zealand industry which does things its own way. Um, but of course the other bigger guilds and unions got involved. Um, and part of this is because Australia and New Zealand have bilateral trade agreements. Indeed, right? yes. So this makes complicated labour conditions between the two countries, is that right? Is that part of it? I think it is part of it, yes. And some of the New Zealand actors were, yeah, were therefore affiliated and, and members of the Australian Union, but not, not all. So there was, there was some uncertainty around that issue, let alone how it related to, to the broader kind of union politics of the production. I mean, I think what I found really um, interesting about it was the way it was resolved, which was, as I, as I had observed in relation to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the government was already involved in various ways in promoting the films, certainly promoting the Lord of the Rings films, as they are again in the Hobbit films. But at the time, um, the government got involved in this dispute and sought to resolve it so that it would not impact upon New Zealand's reputation as a wonderful studio in which to make fantastic Hollywood films in, a, in an environment that is kind of fiscally and in terms of labour relations conducive to these big productions continuing to come and use infrastructure, labour, actors and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> the government negotiated directly uh, with uh, the actors and the unions, and they changed the labour laws very quickly so that, um, so that f from what I remember, that no actors or any workers would be, they would all be considered freelancers unless they were under a, a, under a, a guild contract, they would all be considered kind of, you know, um, freelancing contract workers that hadn't been nailed down in employment legislation up till that point but the government was very quick um, to do that and you know huge tax breaks which have continued to benefit um, the Hobbit films they they boosted those those just a wee bit more just to kind of sweeten the sweeten the, the deal you know, so um, it was just a really interesting little uh, moment in which 
You know, it's almost like the uh, the the yeah, it's a bit like Wizard of Oz. You know, the kind of curtain is drawn back for a second. You know, you get this particular little insight um, into these kinds of labour relations. But again, you know, it was resolved and it was very quietly tucked away. And I mean, you know, there were street protests in New Zealand. You know, things got very, very heated for a short amount of time. And it shows you kind of the investment of um, of the whole country, really, in certain ways, in relation to these films, Peter Jackson, what he's done for the industry, um, and, and so on. And now we're gearing up for the premiere of the first of this new trilogy. Um, and I'll be really interested, I'm going back next month, so I'll miss the premiere, but I might hopefully get some of the, the aftermath. But, you know, as I said to you the other day, it's really interesting the kinds of publicity that, that the government has been involved in this time around. John Key, our current Prime Minister, did a little junket to Hollywood to talk up our um, industry in relation to trade generally, but um, filmmaking and tax breaks and our favourable exchange rate and all those other things that make us such a, an exciting package. Studio New Zealand continues. Um, Wellington is changing its name. It will be called the Middle of Middle Earth for a week. There's currency, there are stamps, um, and there, there's a premiere, so there'll be another street parade like the one I saw uh, some years ago for the return of the king. They shut down Wellington and all the actors parade through the streets on floats, you know, national celebrities. Um, and, you know, the perfect poster boys and girls, mainly boys, I don't think there are many poster girls in The Hobbit, Galadriel, maybe Cate Blanchett, I don't, although I don't know if she'll be at the premiere, all the dwarfs, the various dwarfs I would imagine will be on floats, as will Peter Jackson, and I think John Key will probably be there giving them awards for their service to our country. Bridget, you're a lecturer at King's College London. That's right, yeah. Is that the place people can go to read some of your work, to find out about you in more detail? Or there are other places apart from Flow that we might mention where they can read some of this? Um, yeah, there is... Yes, I'm at King's College London. You could find me there. Um, I've got a new, a recent piece that's just come out in television and new media which is kind of focused on the, the stuff I've done on screenwriting manuals, so that's quite new. Um, and I've had something, I had something earlier in the Journal of Screenwriting, Oops. Journal of Screenwriting, which is kind of a new-ish journal, but one that's, that's really growing. Um, it's kind of part of this whole, I think, and really interesting development in screenwriting studies. Um, so I have something in there they could they could look that up too if they wanted. Great. Well, Bridget, thank you very much. I'd like to extract a promise from you to come back to the pod. Oh, Toby, of course. And maybe after your field trip to New Zealand to give yes. us an update on Wellywood. I would very much like to come back, Toby. Yes, consider me, uh, yeah, the, uh, the reporter. I can report in from my trip back to Hobbiton and I'll great. update you on all the goings on in the middle of Middle Earth and thereabouts. Terrific. And Thanks, Toby, for having me. What fine. What fine.